what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. We really believe in the mission of what we're building and just believe that it needed to exist. And so kind of seeing that as like the long-term goal, that then like all of the little things in between aren't as important. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, a show that dives into the often untold teenage and young adult experiences of successful women from all types of backgrounds and in all sorts of careers. This show is an extension of Bridget, a confidence coaching service for young women. I'm Asha Gabriel, and I co-host this show alongside my best friend, Kishia Rosenberg. Today's guest is Irene Liu. Irene is the CEO and co-founder of Chio, a food delivery service focused on Eastern food therapy and nutritional science for each stage of motherhood. Chio was created to help mothers feel their best as they step into the magical chapter of life that is motherhood. Chio embraces the power of nutrition and does the research, meal design, and delivery so food can be a joyful and adventurous part of your journey. Growing up in a Taiwanese household, Lu learned early on that food can be medicinal, and she spent her years prior to co-founding Chio focused on solving for healthy food access. She worked at Bain advising grocery and retail clients in city government to understand public and private partnerships and for a community-based food access nonprofit setting up mobile grocery routes on Chicago's South Side. Irene and her co-founder, Jen, are Forbes 30 Under 30 list makers and are constantly innovating with their nutritional mission. So with that, Irene, welcome to Meet Bridget. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Excited to be here. So we love to just dive right in with our interviews. We like to um, explore what you were like when you were a very little girl. So as early as you can remember, if you can paint a picture of what it was like to be a little girl. Yeah, it's funny uh, now at this age because I feel like I've reverted back in some ways or, or found myself again. But definitely when I was younger, I was very rebellious. Um very curious and also just honestly kind of a difficult child (laughs) um I think that probably I was always questioning my parents like why we did things a certain way I was super observant my parents always tell this story about I have an older sister Mm -hmm. and they always tell the story about how they very clearly saw the difference in our personalities one July 4th weekend uh, we went to go see the fireworks and the fireworks went off and us two kids went in opposite directions. <laughs> My sister ran far away and I ran toward um, and then they had to chase after us in different directions. Um, but I think as a result, like it's very telling that I was somebody who was always very curious and very excitable and wanted kind of adventure. And I think that kind of why I say I found myself again is because actually I hadn't planned to be an entrepreneur, never was in my career path or on the horizon. And so a lot of what I've realized is like how much I enjoy being an entrepreneur actually has always been in me and my personality. I love that so much. Is it just uh, you and your sister? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your age difference between the two of you? Uh, We're two and a half years apart. Okay. That's kind of, I have two daughters, a two and a half year old and eight month old right now. And I constantly am already observing these differences in them when, and their babies, you know, yeah. like so much is just inherent. But I love hearing how you kind of, you have this feeling now that you're, you've had a lot of traction in your career, you're like, I'm still that person that I've right. always been. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy how much personality you can tell at such a young age too. Um, but I've, I've definitely felt like, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, but I definitely took a very more traditional path out of college and then kind of over time was like is this what I want to do like I have so many more years of my career what do I actually find impactful and now I feel like I know my career is even less trapped than when I was in my early 20s but I'm even more excited about it yeah I can totally relate to that experience of kind of trying to do what you think is right or the right path And, you know, try as you might, like you might be successful for a little while, 
having that kind of pit of your stomach feeling where it's like, but I think I really should be doing something mm-hmm. else and having to transition. So I want to um, stay on kind of what it was like to be a little girl for you a little bit more because this, I already feel like there's so many good stories in there. Where did you grow up? Uh, I was in Arcadia, California, in the LA area. How was like the school experience for you? Did you like it? Were you academic? Yeah, um, I was definitely academic, but I will say I was someone who would get good grades, but I was never the A plus. Like I was always just on the border, like trying to get the A minus and enjoy my life um, and like pursue all my other curiosities. And so it's interesting because I was somebody who actually watched TV for like two hours a day just because I was really interested in the storyline and I loved reading which my parents thought was a big waste of time. But I was like, but I'm getting good grades. So what can you really do? <laughs> well, and it's funny because it's like, okay, actually, you know, there is like mindless TV, but there still is implicitly a lot going on, especially when you're building a company and stuff, seeing commercials and advertising mm-hmm. and stories. It's like, as an entrepreneur, you need to know how to build a brand and promote totally. it. You need to know how to tell a story and grip an audience. So it's kind of like, Everything you do can feed into where you're going. Yeah. Um, yeah. As simple as like watching TV and being into it when you're, when you're totally. younger. Yeah. And I think also I only realized this much later, but like I had a very active imagination in many ways. Like I, I was the one at recess, like making up games, like this game called Puppy, where we'd all pretend to be puppies with like different, like give everyone different roles and create this whole story around it. And I only, recently actually realized how that was like a, a personality or a trait <laughs> and like I was totally. the one being always... a little director too right, like, right. Okay, this is what you're going to do right. this is how it works it's all going to come together like this <laughs> right I love that right. what were other like activities that you were into when you were younger I mean I loved reading so I spent a lot of time at the library with like my mom or my grandma literally was always in the library in elementary school like taking those like standardized tests you know of like testing your knowledge on different books and always at the dinner table with the book and getting in trouble for that but I also did dance I did theater um I did speech and debate and so it was a very varied experience for sure I think what I realized is that I was somebody and this I realized much later when I'm older I had always struggled with especially in high school, feeling like I didn't have one thing. Like there were some of my friends who, you know, their one thing was dance or their one thing was swimming or their one thing was, you know, speech and debate. And like they excelled at that one thing. And I was somebody who loved doing a lot of different things, like had five or or seven like different extracurriculars at a time. I just love the diversity of how much I was learning from each one, but I never was motivated to like get to the hundred percent and be the best in that field. And I feel like I always beat myself up about that and, and actually forced myself to like choose one thing after I finished college. Well, after consulting, actually, because consulting, you're still not choosing. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get into that too, because I think there's probably a lot of people that don't really understand what that track looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And and like being and as I've gotten older, just being more comfortable with that and seeing that as a skill too to be have a lot of breadth and and kind of a good enough amount of depth. Yeah, I think I mean, I've even I've gone into this with like my therapist about that when you have that, I feel like it's like a gene, like a curiosity gene, that pressure where it's like, why am I not just like one of those people that can just be Mm -hmm. like piano is my thing and I'm going to be an expert like right. concert pianist and everyone like I've been working on this since I was three I mean just being like I I love that idea and I am critical about you know not having that kind of commitment to one thing but also like it is not in my being to be able to cut out all these other things that I'm also interested in and having them all going at the same time is chaotic but also like what has to happen right you know and it does take a lot of work to kind of accept that about yourself and be like this is a this has its, you know, strengths as well, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I do bring certain things to the table by being this way um, that maybe someone who's hyper-focused in another thing can't bring to the totally. table. Yeah. I love that. Can you tell us about like your family, your parents growing up? I know from what I know about Chio, I know that a lot of what you've done 
has been inspired by your mother and cooking. Can you tell us a little bit about that dynamic at home? So my family is Taiwanese-American. My mom actually came, like they immigrated over from Taiwan pretty early. She was like, I think 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. So we li- like she went to Arcadia High School, like all of my aunts and uncles went to Arcadia High School, which is really funny and I think rare in this day and age. Yes. Um, and my dad came for, from graduate school or for graduate school and he's an engineer. And then my mom um, worked in accounting and finance. And so it was very interesting because my, so I'll say and when they immigrated over, kind of they took more traditional jobs, but my family in Taiwan is actually very entrepreneurial. A lot of them like own their own businesses or, or are in business in some way. Um, and then actually my dad, my grandpa, my dad's side was also super entrepreneurial, you know, started factories, like created technologies, et cetera, et cetera. And he passed away when I was in elementary school. And actually that was um, around the time that then my dad actually ended his, you know, engineering job and then um, started his own small business. And I think part of it is like being an immigrant entrepreneur is really hard, especially if you're first generation. Because a lot of being an entrepreneur, like, you know, fundraising, networks, like all of that, you have to start from zero. And so it's funny because in my family, like it's never been encouraged to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner because, you know, my dad's experience of seeing like what my parents knew and saw of their generation, it was like nearly impossible. And so I think it's been a lot of learning actually for me and my family. It's like a lot of the times I'm some, I'm the one that's like traversing this new frontier. Like I didn't know what consulting was, but then I did it. And yeah. like my parents didn't know what consulting was. And they wanted me to go into accounting because that's something that they understood um, or even like going to graduate school. And no one in my mm-hmm. family had gotten, you know, a policy degree before. And and then, you know, starting a company and kind of actually, you know, like fundraising for and learning kind of all of the more um, traditional have new ways of building a business, sure. I think has all been really interesting for my family to learn and kind of see and have exposure to like a whole different part of America. I love hearing stories of, um, you know, first gen and then second generation immigrant families because my mom immigrated from, from India. And I think similarly, when she came here, you know, she saw the path to success. And in that time, it was a lot more, you know, linear. Like mm-hmm. If you go to certain schools, whether you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or some sort of like finance job, you like get the degree, you get the license, right. you, you know, you have a guaranteed path. And that was kind of how my parents were, did a similar, you know, very structured path, but into medicine. And they encouraged that path, but none of us really actually took it. But it's also one of the reasons why, you know, and I've talked with my mom about this, especially now we're both like, you know, adults and friends. But um, we've talked about, you know, as an immigrant, part of coming here is with the hope that your children will be able to surpass you and have freedoms that you didn't see and be able to take paths that might be more unique than what you know you felt like you needed mm-hmm. to do to break through in America. I love thinking about, you know, your parents watching you kind of find your way back to this entrepreneurialism, but have it being a very different experience from a first gen immigrant entrepreneur experience where it's like you you had this foundation of consulting, which we'll get into which I think a, a lot of great entrepreneurs have had that foundation because of the, you know, all the connections and relationships that it establishes for you. Yeah. I love that. And with your mom, with like cooking and everything, how was it growing up? What was your relationship? Because you have a food-based company, what was your relationship mm-hmm. with food growing up? Yeah, it's so funny because we live in Arcadia or my family does and my grandparents also live in Arcadia. And so actually... Food was always like a very big part of how we gathered, um, like going to my grandma's house to eat lunch every Sunday. And my mom would always be cooking at home. And she always used like a lot of these like medicinal ingredients. But when I was younger, I like, you know, typical kind of like younger, curious and rebellious. I was like, why are we eating these things? Like, what's the nutritional content? Where's the evidence? Like, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm sure I drove her crazy. <laughs> I think actually... Like, I wasn't actually that 
curious about food as medicine, actually, until my aunt had a baby um, the summer of 2020. I was more interested in like healthy food access and nutrition education career-wise because I saw such a discrepancy. Actually, when I was uh, in college at Berkeley, I was doing this, taking this education class, doing field work in Oakland and learned about food insecurity and saw how hard it was for them to get ingredients. And so I helped set up a farmer's market at one of the elementary schools. But I was, it was just shocking to see like, oh, people, like I take it for granted when growing up, like we just go to one of the five grocery stores around us. Everything was relatively affordable. There was a lot of options compared to in food deserts. Like you don't have, oftentimes people also don't have cars because they're low income areas and they can't get access to a grocery store within a mile, if not more. And so you're forced to eat all this like processed food and has all these health implications. And I think that was really what started my interest in healthy food because I was like, like, why doesn't like healthy food just exist for everybody? That's like a fundamental right. And then like kind of the food as medicine and Eastern medicine aspect of it happened more because I saw my aunt go through her postpartum period and my mom sending her these like traditional Chinese medicine postpartum meals. And I was like, oh, this is so fascinating, like because it was so specific to a point in time where you knew exactly what you were solving for like you know postpartum recovery all of the symptoms and mood swings and rotation and all of these very specific concerns and how the food was combined to help with that I think was a very different way of how I even thought about food versus just like general healthy food maintenance yeah I think that you make such a good point because so Kashia, my co-host, and I are both postpartum and breastfeeding oh, right now. Okay. Um, so firsthand, we're both like experiencing this is my second baby. So I've kind of had the whole arc and then started really? again and, you know, have learned in a lot of ways how important and like demanding, nutritionally demanding like that breastfeeding period of your life is. It's like, you know, training for an Olympic sport. Yeah, it's, it's totally like, is. Yeah. Demands on your body. And it's just, it is really hard to get all the nutrition in. It's not as simple as just like popping a prenatal vitamin, mm -hmm. like, and it changes in different like parts yeah. of your experience. So I think it's so cool that you've kind of dialed in on this very specific time. And I mean, as women, I think that there are a lot of like, this is one of the clearest ones where it's like, yes, nutritional needs because you're feeding another human. Right. But I mean, when we go through having, getting our periods for the first time and those Lovely. hormonal changes or, you know, when we're going through menopause or right. perimenopause, right. those nutritional changes, like our hormones are constantly shifting our bodies and cycles and everything are just so sensitive. Yeah. Men have all different cycles and hormones too, but particularly for women. I think it's fascinating how much nutrition can play into totally. easing some of those. Yeah. And like, I think what I found shocking as like, you know, first starting it and then now two years in is like how much of a woman's body we don't know and how much we haven't invested in researching and building products that are custom made for women who are going through a very different journey from men. And I think that's also why like, there is such an Eastern medicine component to what we do because they actually have focused on this. And there are so, like, literally, I remember when I got my first period, my mom had me like drink this concoction. It was like really dark and murky and gross, but I drank it. And, you know, it was, you know, supposed to help with cramps and you're supposed to drink it after your first period. It's been used for thousands of generations. And like, obviously, it, it's hard to say outside of like clinical trials, which all, you know, there's actually more and more clinical trials about that and proving out the efficacy of it. But like my sister and I, like I just took that for granted. Like I, I very thankfully, like don't get cramps and I have very few menstrual issues. But I think that for most people, like you wouldn't have access that, to that. Like your mom wouldn't be bringing you to the acupuncturist to get these herbal remedies. And like there's no place to learn about it. And especially like the wealth of knowledge that already exists in other countries. Totally. And I, I think that globally, it's crazy because you would think like in the U.S., like we have so many resources, but globally, you know, in all sorts of different countries, they have different methods and ancient practices right. around yeah. pregnancy and birth and menstruation and all right. these things. But we haven't explored and tapped into as much as we can being an international, 
you know, country and, and a country of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my mom's Indian and there's the whole like historical Ayurvedic me- mm-hmm. medicine and the first 40 days after you have a baby, a lot of similar practices. But I think that sometimes people think that it's like, okay, you have to be Eastern or Western. Like mm-hmm. you can't, you know, integrate like, it, oh, if you're, you think Chinese medicine is the thing, then you can't say any like hospital medicine right, is right. for you. And I think that misses out on on a lot. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. So let's go back into, so you went to college at Berkeley and you were kind of getting more into food studies, working in your community. What made you decide to go into consulting? And can you paint a picture of just like for someone who has never heard the word consulting before? Yeah. What that, what that is out of college? Yeah. Um, it's funny because consulting, when you explain it, it sounds like a crazy job. <laughs> yeah. But basically, you start out like fresh out of college. You have no skills. They just think that you can learn quickly and problem solve. And so you basically are put in like I I think of it as like you're put in as like a doctor for a corporation. Whatever problems that they're having, you work directly with like the C-level executives to figure out a solution um, and you bring like the best practices of, you know, like business research and also like what you've learned from other companies and so it's very much it's a very intense job both like mentally and and physically but I think you learn a ton and gives you so much exposure at such a young age like I remember so I think I when I started I was 20 or 21 years old and I was managing somebody by the time I was 24 (laughs) and like For some people, like you don't manage somebody until you're like in your 30s. And I was working directly with managers and I was like in my early 20s, which it's crazy. I also then, you know, did all these things and dressed a certain way and changed how I talked to seem older than I was for sure. But I think I'm going back to like consulting and and that I'm I'm happy to share like even how I found myself in consulting (laughs) because I had no idea what it was going into it. At Berkeley, I was actually a business major. Part of that is because I actually didn't, I, I came in as a history major. Again, like I was very interested in, you know, reading and history and storytelling and all of that. Or my parents being immigrant parents. I was like, oh, I'm a history major. They're like, okay, well, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You're going to go to law school? So they didn't know like what else you could do with that. And so my dad was like, maybe you should go like do the business school program because like it's very practical there's a lot of options that you can have after that and so I was like okay I don't know any better so then I did the business major at Berkeley also along the way joined um, a professional business fraternity while I was there also because I didn't know anything and so I really do think that like Berkeley's business program is very professional everybody is working every summer also during the school year the tracks are like you either go into like most people go into like banking some like at the time very few people but growing were going into consulting but kind of how I found myself there was because I was doing like I did an internship at Airbnb actually in my sophomore year was really lucky <laughs> to get that I honestly like didn't know very much about startups at the time um, and then for consulting it was like the summer, like junior year summer when everyone, like that's kind of like the summer that everyone's like, oh, this is the internship that converts to full-time. So it really matters, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew I didn't want to do banking. I was like, I don't enjoy finance. And like, why would I put myself through that if I know I'm not going to enjoy it? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't recruit for banking, which actually at the time, a lot of people said would potentially be a mistake because it was really hard to get a job in consulting and I I just recruited for consulting which was also stressful in its own way because there were very few spots for consulting and I ended up working at Bain for that summer there's only like three of us from Berkeley that got an internship Mm -hmm. at Bain so like it was very unpredictable (laughs) if I would get it or not and I also like really didn't bank on that like honestly I didn't think I had a chance at Bain I literally didn't I to the point where I didn't network with anybody at banks I just like didn't think that I would get that and I remember actually talking to one of my professors at the time it was like a VC PE class that's venture capital and private equity 
And yeah. I had actually mistakenly signed up for the class <laughs> um, <laughs> because I just needed to fill my schedule for like two units. And yeah. little did you know. Right. And then ended up going to <laughs> that. that. I know. I ended up going to class the first day and there was a huge line of people. And like apparently the professor was like super famous. And I actually loved the class. And so I was like, okay, I think I'll stay in this class. But he really was like the most, most impactful professor I had at Berkeley. Not because I spent a lot of time with him, but more because he gave me so much life perspective at a time that I really needed it. I remember like I took a quiz or something and I also felt very unprepared in that class because I was a junior. Most people were seniors who had gone through banking. I literally didn't know what BCMP was in that class. I just was like, this is a really interesting class and I guess I'll learn. It'll be scary and I'll be whatever. I'll figure it out. I hadn't taken finance yet. That's <laughs> so like literally like zero. I had to work really hard in that class to like literally learn everything that was like so commonplace now if you're in the industry. But I remember meeting him for office hours because I got like a seven out of 10 on a quiz or something like that. And I remember when I brought it up to him, I was like, okay, like I really want to improve. Like, what should I be focusing on? Like, why did I get the score? Because the way that he would ask the question was like, it was like a one line question and you just had to like defend the point. Very mm -hmm. blank canvas. And he was like, you know, you're actually his response to me about improvement he was like you know you're a really good writer like you're very good at logic you're very good at explaining the point you're not so good at finance and I was like yeah that checks out so and he was like and he was like so what are you thinking about this summer and I was like well I'm applying for consulting but like I, I heard it's really hard and so I don't really know like I think I'll, I'll just go through the consulting process and like if it doesn't work I'll I'll figure it out and like maybe I'll work at a startup for the summer but I haven't thought that far yet and he was like, yeah, like it is competitive. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, probably you could get a, a full-time job senior year. They, there's more spots for that. Um, but also, like, have you considered being a writer for TechCrunch? And I was like, oh, no, but that sounds really fun. And he was like, yeah, like there's actually, mm -hmm. there, are, there are a lot of options out there. And like, you don't have to force yourself into what everybody else says is good or what skills people like of your age think is worth building mm -hmm. and I and even though I didn't end up going that route I think that was like a super healthy way of looking at it and gave me a lot less pressure about going through this consulting process and being like if I don't get something like what like what will that mean about me? that's such that's such a great point and I love that um you telling your story of your interaction with him because it's almost like it's you never know when you're going to find someone that, you know, whether you stay in contact with them or not, like they can completely change your life without you even knowing mm -hmm. um, if you're just open and like listening and paying attention. But for him to kind of reinforce that might seem like it at the time, especially in like these college environments where everyone's scrambling and you're kind of on a timeline, you have to get this thing by the summer. And then it can feel like if I don't get that, I am a failure, you know, right. and there's no other option. And it can be very confusing. Um, but that feeling can block out a lot of other opportunities. And for him to say like, hey, like, yeah, that could be, you should definitely do that. And if it doesn't work out, there's still tons of things that mm -hmm. you can do. And with that, like, what a great critical time for you to hear those words. Yeah. So I like to get really granular during the, these times of life, because a lot of our listeners are young women. Some are, you know, going into college or finishing college at Berkeley when you are applying for these internships and jobs. How are you applying for the jobs that you got interviews on? How did that process go? Were you submitting an application online or using a career center? Yeah. And then what were processes like? Yeah. Um, so I'll start with like sophomore year internship because that is a very different process from junior year internship. Sophomore year in, and actually I did a freshman year internship too, but like freshman and sophomore year, there's like no tracks. Like, like there's yeah. no like, there isn't really like on-campus recruiting. You're kind of just like, seeing listings and then or hearing about something from an alumni that passed it down or something like that. So it was very, very fluid, very hard to nail down. Um, I think my first summer was basically like a listing on the Career Center. It was unpaid. <laughs> I would take the subway or what is it called? The subway in LA, the metro mm -hmm. um, yeah, from Arcadia to West Hollywood. 
but it was a startup. I just like didn't really have any conception of that um, in influencer marketing. Kind of that was like freshman year. I just like applied and then they took me, but also it was unpaid. So like, was the bar that high? Probably not. <laughs> and then and honestly, sometimes those can be like the most like juicy, interesting opportunities. Right. right. Always, but don't discount something because it's unpaid. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. And then the second year, I I was actually having a really hard time my second year um, recruiting because basically I was in this business fraternity. The kind of typical jobs that were coming in were like finance related, like working at a PE firm as like an analyst or something or like a VC firm or honestly, I couldn't even tell you like other other types like that or like an intense like banking job at like a small bank. And I was having a hard time probably because I just like wasn't passionate about it. So like my cover letter was like not that great. I had no relevant experience. And I remember actually what ended up happening was I was pretty, I think most of my friends already had internships lined up by the time I was like, I got my Airbnb one. This was around May or maybe earlier April of that year. And basically I had kind of like not really been getting interviews for a lot of these like financy jobs. And probably mm-hmm. at that time, like I wasn't looking further, right, compared to like what my professor had told me to do my junior year. Um, and so the Airbnb listing, I think, went up like rel- at the startups, like startups always are a bit later, but somebody had sent yeah. the uh, posting around. And so I interviewed for it and then miraculously got it. Uh, I'm still very good friends and keep in contact with my manager there. But I honestly think that I got really lucky to you know, not have had an internship yet, lined up that the timing worked, had actually, now that you say this, like had worked at a startup previously (laughs) that was like VC back and I had no idea my freshman year. Probably like Mm -hmm. that was like also relevant experience. And so that, and I had a great time at Airbnb, learned a lot. But I think what I, I learned from Airbnb for myself was that I needed to be at that phase of my career and life. Like I I felt like I needed a bit more structure and training in order to be impactful in that environment, which is why I went to consulting the following summer and didn't like go continue down this startup path because I like didn't really know what the promotion track would be there and also like what my role and my value add would be at that age and training. And honestly, like I think Airbnb helped me a lot with getting interviews my junior year. And when I would be in my final round interviews, people would ask me about two things like it was they were asking me about either airbnb or working at the farmer's market in oakland and so i think it's like like even from that experience like what are interesting jobs or interesting things you're doing outside of the normal track that really gets people's attention i love that i know that um when you're interviewing for consulting the structure of their interview they is it do they do case interviews um in an mm-hmm. undergraduate yep. level too um, I know a lot of my friends from business school um, went back to the consulting track out of like as MBAs, but it's like a very unique process where you you learn how to basically like problem solve by following a case. Like basically they'll they'll give you a scenario and they want to see like how you think through a problem. It's not necessarily whether you get like a right answer, but they want to see basically how your mind works. Right. And that's what they're hiring for. They're hiring for people that can think on their feet that can think outside the box, that can be very structured in their communication of their thought processes. It's really like a fascinating interview process beyond the like, tell me about yourself. And when was a time where you led a group, the the traditional, you know, interview process. So for girls that are interested in that, know that it's its its own beast, um, but you might be really good at it and not even know. I also started prepping for my consulting interviews like quite late compared to my friends who were going through consulting. Like I remember one of my friends like knew he wanted to do consulting like from the beginning started prepping in September when um, January February is when interviews start for that summer and I started literally in December because <laughs> I was like not sure yet and I was like focused on getting good grades in my classes um, and so like I had to learn at like warp speed like my uh, I ended up I think that December like I would do two cases a day with um, different people live I kind of just like went straight into it I think this is kind of my approach to everything is just like start it and get feedback as quickly as possible because like that's the way that you learn most quickly and then also like 
with the case interview, a lot of it is, yes, there's like some preparation that you should do and listen to, you know, Victor Shang, I think was what, I don't know if people still yeah. use it, but, but back in the day, that was what was used. But I think there's some element of also just like being present. I think for me, that was really important going into the interview so that I could think on my seat and not try to like come up with a formula that I had heard from another interview, like kind of understand the building blocks and then be able to like be present and really understand the question and answer logically. I love that. Are there any things that you do? Because I think that that's a, a quality in really almost any any career path that is so valuable is being present, especially when you're working with a team or leading or solving life problems, the ability to just be fully there and show up not in the past or in the future, but right in the present. Do you have any practices or things that help you be better at that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think one is just awareness of it. Like are like asking yourself before you step into the call, like, okay, why, like, what's the purpose of this call? Do I know exactly what I want to get out of it is number one. And the second thing I think is like, if I do feel very overwhelmed, like I, I'm a big list maker, so I'll just write it down, park it, revisit it later. Uh, but I think probably for me, the more important thing was just like awareness of like, what does it feel like to be present and be able to react um, impactfully in the meeting versus kind of like scatterbrained or asking people to repeat things and et cetera, et cetera. I think that was also, that's also probably something that you learn from observation as well. Like I had managers at Bain that like some were really good at being present, you know, they had like five million other things going on and others were like, if like I was repeating myself five times and like yeah. just knowing the difference between the two and wanting to be a good example for whoever I was with. It's like being aware of your surroundings and, and your role models, but also of yourself. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned that while you were at Bain, you um, worked with a lot of like retail or grocery clients. Were there any that, you know, were sort of like case studies that you drew information from as you were starting Chio? I would love to say yes, more so. But I think that at the scale we were working with our clients at, they were like huge at that point. And so yeah. a lot of it was like, optimization and so I think that type of work will probably be more helpful going forward but I do think I learned a lot of skills out of consulting that is super relevant to what we do now like I think one like I I never really thought about like setting strategy or like being able to prioritize quickly or you know setting up a process and experimentation like how and even like who how to gather information so important in consulting you learn how to do it very quickly there's a whole formula of like best practices around that but like what an important skill that was for the early days for us it's like if I have a question Mm -hmm. and I don't know how to do it like who are five people that I get in contact with to ask the question like a quick google what does that tell me and it sounds very simple but I think it's just being able to like structure and prioritize the work totally I think that so there's a lot of people that can identify with that entrepreneurial spirit the curiosity where it's like, I just feel like I'm destined to start something. Um, but I also feel like those people tend to have, they're like idea people in a lot of cases. They're people that are really excitable and can get behind something and get other people behind them. When you started Chio, what work did you do internally to know like, this is the concept, this is the idea, this is what I should be leading? How did you kind of put all of those pieces into your formula before you started yeah it was messy (laughs) so I guess some backstory and I said this a little bit earlier was like I never planned to start my own company or be the CEO I literally like that summer of 2020 when I saw my mom take care of my aunt I was just like oh like this just makes sense like why doesn't this type of service exist and so I was very driven by curiosity and so I was like I literally then that night like wrote up a whole business plan essentially but it wasn't it wasn't really for the purpose of like starting the business. It was just like, if I had a business, like, like everything was so conceptual. Like if I had a business, like what would it look like? What would it be called? Like it was kind of like a fun exercise for me. And then I kind of did it the consulting way. Like I sent out a survey to like a bunch of my friends and asked them to pass it on to other people that were in this life stage. Um, I got a bunch of data back about like, you know, pricing and configuration and, you know, customer behavior. But I think what was interesting is like, I still didn't know, like, I was like, okay, like, I think I need to do a pilot and see are people willing to pay for it. And 
what does it need to taste like? How does it need to be marketed? Um, and so then I got connected with my co-founder, Jen. We did a pilot that fall. So this was now fall of 2020. We did like a five-week pilot. And still, I wasn't sure. I was like, okay, like it seems like there's something here. I'm not quite sure. The product isn't quite there. People are willing to pay, but like there's a lot more that needs to be figured out here. And so I actually, we had paused that pilot and I had actually planned to do a fundraise or something that fall, um, or sorry, that December. So I started having some conversations because I was like, okay, we need some money to like really, you know, put in research and development and, you know, have a bigger team to actually do this correctly and scale it and et cetera, et cetera. And then I started having conversations, maybe like one or two with like people I knew that work in investing. And I was like, oh, okay, this is impossible. This is going to be an uphill battle. Like nobody believes that this is something people want. A lot of the investors like aren't, haven't gone through this life phase, like don't really see how big the market could be, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was December. And then kind of miraculously, but also shows what a gap in the market, we ended up getting like thousands of dollars in pre-orders that December when we were closed. And when mm-hmm. we looked into it, like, where is this coming from? Because we are literally silent. Yeah. We were the first organic Google search result that literally happened like overnight in December. We we're like, oh my God. And so like, we weren't really thinking. We we're just like, oh my gosh, like they're newly postpartum women. Like we need to get this up and running. Like we can't deliver it to them like three months later. Uh, yeah. Like we'll be there soon. <laughs> right. So then we literally just cobbled it together. Like not thinking truly. Like we were like, okay, like, yeah. like how do we get a kitchen team? Like what space do we get? And we ended up you know, getting these like Michelin star chefs that were out of work from like another contact. And then we were at a restaurant that had a day off. So we used their day off in the kitchen until we could find a longer term kitchen. Once January, then it kind of like at every point, we just like kept building on top of it. And this was still me and Jennifer. I was still in school um, this whole time, full time graduate school. And we had no full time team chefs that kind of were like, part-time delivering once a week Jennifer still had her nutrition practice so it was mm-hmm. very very much cobbled together and part of it was like we got a New York Times feature a Bon Appetit feature all in our first quarter and so that was when I was like okay there's like it's not just like in the abstract it's not just research like people are literally paying us and writing about us which is crazy but I think that actually even then I wasn't sure if I wanted to run it like I think that like two things like one I hadn't thought that hard about like what type of business, if I did run a business, what type of business would it be? What would keep me motivated for at least five years to build it? And because the business had started so quickly and kind of like snowballed, I was like, okay, am I going to be happy running this type of business in two years, in five years? And I, at that point, like the answer was no, because at that point, I could only see the business as a meal delivery business for like the postpartum period. And I was like, I'm, I'm not an optimizer. <laughs> like, like how I said earlier, yeah. right? Like the best type of founder, if it was a postpartum meal delivery service is somebody that is very good at ops and efficiency. I am not that. <laughs> I am, I've never done physical products. I'm also not a mother. And so at the time I was like, I don't think that I'm the right person to run this. And like, I, don't think that I would be happy focusing on like operational efficiency every day to run this company. And so that was kind of like the fall or sorry, the of 2021. I was still working on it, but like really thinking about it critically, still doing it part time. And it wasn't actually until fall that fall that I um, was actually taking a social entrepreneurship class in my policy program and talking about like, okay, because I think what it unearthed for me actually starting Chia was like oh I actually really like entrepreneurship I really like creating something out of nothing I think it's really fun but then I think the question was like but is this the business that's right for me to build and like do I feel like I can build it authentically in a way that aligns with my value so I think the things that were hard for me to swallow was one like it is a more premium product and I didn't really know what the path to accessibility would look like because you know, my background, like I worked at Food Access nonprofits, like I worked in city government, like it just felt like I didn't want to build this like high cost premium, convincing people that they needed something that they didn't type of business. Um, and I didn't really see a path outside of that if I needed it to get funding and, you know, 
get it up and running and um, have high margins and stuff like that. And so then that fall was when I was taking that social entrepreneurship class and really like I was writing this like 25 page final paper that I couldn't think of what to write about. So I was literally just like, you know, like word vomiting on this essay, examining other types of businesses and what I found really inspiring about it um, and what type of business would I want to be building that I would be really proud of. And then what I realized was like, oh, actually, like maybe I can build all of this within Geo. I just hadn't seen it that way. And I assumed that like if I needed to get funding for it and appease investors and things like that, like that I'd have to build it a very specific way. But what if I just tried it my way and like see if that works? And like if it doesn't, I tried my best. And if it does, then great. Like I've created a new example of what social entrepreneurship could look like. That is so amazing. I think that when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, there can kind of be like two pressures. You, you're like, okay, entrepreneur. And you're like, look up, like, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And okay, what is venture capital? And like, how do I get funding and series A and this and that? Like, and do I pitch and everything? And half of it can be like, okay, how do I get all these like heavy swinging investors to like believe in my pitch? And then the other half is like actually running your company and a team and making sure it's viable and getting your customers pleased. And it's sort of like, okay, where do I put the majority of my time? And I think that in, you know, a business, especially one that is around, you know, this postpartum period, it's a very niche, you know, it's a niche market with high and urgent needs. But most of the investors, unfortunately, still you know, there's there's been a little bit of headway, but unfortunately, most of the investors in that venture capital space are men. <laughs> you know, they're they're definitely not women that are having babies and having these kind of nutritional needs. But a lot of products, you know, I've heard some stories of other women creating women-centric products and going into some of these rooms, and they're just like, no, don't get it. Right, <laughs> you know, right. so I like how you, you know, even whether it was intentional or not, you know the traction started forming from your customers and people really like calling out to you to create this product further that that was like, okay, well let like the proof be in the pudding or right. you know, in the delicious Eastern <laughs> food is medicine meal. But that demand, it's like, well, whether or not these people believe me or, you know, whether I fit this specific criteria to be investable you know, this is a product mm-hmm. that people are needing and I can run it my way with like mission and, you know, bring bring what my passions are into this product while still having it be, you know, profitable and runnable as a business. Mm-hmm. Where does the name Chio come from? Yeah. Um, so it is a Japanese baby name, but basically it means thousands of generations or eternal, which is very much like the philosophy of how we think about care. I love that. Did you guys have, I, I think I saw that it was named something else um, before. Before it was named Nori and that literally I came up with the night I had the idea. So we did not invest a lot of anything into that. But what ended up happening was like, we always knew that we were going to do a rebrand because like I literally thought of it that night and just ran with it. But then we got a cease and desist actually last, uh, last fall. Uh, we just pulled up the rebrand earlier. I love it. Two more things I really want to dive into. One, so you have a co-founder and that dynamic, I think that clearly you guys have been working together for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of working together successfully, any different traits and things that you bring to the table or issues that you've had working together and how you've communicated and navigated that? Yeah, um, definitely co-founder relationship is like a marriage, as everyone says. I think some context on like where we come from is helpful. Like my co-founder is, um, you know, a nutritionist and, and she used to work in tech way earlier than that. But like technically um, of how she spent her last like seven years is like as a nutritionist in the birth community. And so very much like more fluid in the way that she works versus for me, like I came from like very, you know, high intensity types of backgrounds. And so I think, and I have a very specific way of like, I'm very direct and, and like getting feedback and like giving feedback and like very growth mindset oriented. And I think that was just like not the environment that my co-founder was used to. And 
you know, giving and receiving feedback also wasn't like kind of like the norm <laughs> in in her every day. And so I think there was like definitely some kind of getting used to each other's styles, creating the culture around giving feedback um, that was super helpful and also spelling out like what what good looks like, what process looks like, what like speed is accepted for communication. And I think that's all things that are part of like a healthy relationship generally. Like even if you think of like your romantic relationships, you're kind of like creating these norms for being together. Um, And I think that was something that we had to do very early on um, also because like we didn't have like I literally like cold reached out to her <laughs> to like do this with me because I knew that she had like the relevant expertise but as a result we've like really worked on it together and I feel like we've over time built like a really trusted relationship where we are giving each other like very direct feedback and um, kind of like can take the emotion out of it but I think at the end of the day what really helped us is that we just really believed in the mission of what we were building and just believe that it needed to exist. And so kind of seeing that as like the long-term goal that then like all of the little things in between aren't as important. I think that's so critical when you think of like co-founders, when you're talking about, you clearly need to agree on that mission, both be committed in the same extent, see like, okay, this is entrepreneurship. So there's going to be some bumps in the road. So like have that commitment. It is almost like a marriage where it's like, we're signing on for this. Right. Um, but also knowing that like having different skills that you bring to the table is actually like a, a great thing. Like you don't want everyone to look. Sometimes I think people are building teams and it's like, okay, I need to just recreate myself and bring a lot of me's to the table, but then you're really missing out mm-hmm. on a lot of really important things. So finding someone that like believes in the mission the same way you do and is willing to like, you know, work with you, but also brings like things that you don't have mm-hmm. to the table. Yeah. That's amazing. So everyone knows, you know, entrepreneurship has ups and downs. Can you tell us about maybe one moment that was like a total up where it was like, oh my gosh, like a kind of we've made it moment mm-hmm. or some validation. And then maybe also a moment that you felt like this all is lost kind of yeah. emotion and how you. I'm trying to think. Okay. So I think the first kind of like the big win I think was getting we were featured in fortune uh in January of this year and I think that was like super validating and impactful because you know as much as like we are very comfortable what we're building like we are building with our community I think what fortune opened up for us was like okay like now the business community sees the potential Mm. here and the need in a way that previously it felt and I said this before like when I was you know, having my first conversations in like December of 2020, I was like, oh, it was an uphill battle. Like, this is never going to work. But I think what Fortune did was like got us the audience that, you know, Fortune has, but also validated that like this can be a viable business, that it's serving a need that, you know, they are, you know, doing well in terms of revenue and growth that then opened up a lot of doors for us and a lot of exposure to a different audience. Um, so I think that was one. Um, and then the second was, probably the this was like I think April of 2022 when it all felt like it could fall apart what happened was basically I had been I was you know still in full-time school fundraising right before I graduated in May the day that I closed our fundraise in April of 2022 and my co-founder Jennifer um, had just had a baby literally that week and so in the interim, like who was running kind of like kitchen operations, we had a head chef um, that had been working with us for probably like two months at that point. And that same day, she emailed me and said she was quitting. And we we're like, oh, my God, because literally Jennifer was like one week postpartum. She like yeah. the chef said that she was like over it and was literally like I had to like beg her to stay for even like three days to like help with the transition as I like found a new team. Yeah. And and I had just gotten off fundraising that Friday and being like, we're going to use real. all this money for X, Y, Z and expand. And I'm like, oh, actually, now we're going to like start over and like build out our operations again. And I think what was hard was like, obviously, like I was out of the business for like two months fundraising. And I think our chef, like I fully understand why she 
she was over it and quit. Like it was a hard job. We're asking her to do a lot with very little. And and I think like it had just taken longer than she had wanted to like get signed on full time. So I was like fundraising took a bit longer than I expected to. But I think that what was hard was like for us, like then being like, okay, what do we do now? Like I wanted Jennifer to have a maternity leave, but also we were you know worried about can we actually pause this and like start back up again? Is that actually feasible when we already have customers? And I think what we ended up doing was like Jennifer literally was like, I, I, I think that it just needs to go on and like I want to be in the kitchen next week. And so kind of helping her with that. But then I was like trying to figure out, you know, getting chefs basically over that weekend, like Craigslist, um, yeah. postings on Facebook, asking other friends in the industry and like trying to support where I could and then like coming in between classes um and so yeah it was a chaotic time but kind of us getting over that hurdle really showed us like we can solve anything and like it will always look better in three months totally I mean which is wild that it's also in her immediate postpartum time that yeah. it's like that all of this stuff kind of came together but that is that's like the reality of kind of postpartum is like everything is redefined and what you think you need like isn't there and things don't show up and then you kind of have to figure it out. And it's like, that is like a big metaphor for what the experience of having a complete transition to be becoming a mother, even though this was a hard time for your company, it built into the way that you guys are able to integrate and understand getting over hurdles and finding community and working through it together. Is totally. one I love that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like we could just chat all day. But I don't want to use up all your time. So we like to transition at the end of our interviews into just a quick, casual, um, fast five questions. So I'll ask them and just say whatever comes to mind. Okay. Number one, what is your comfort food? Oh, my gosh. Um, at this point, it's broth. <laughs> like it. Any kind of broth? Like, is like, it a, a, like a bone like a broth? Like a seaweed miso broth. Oh, yeah, love it. With all this rain, you guys are having it up. Oh, wait, you're in New York right now, actually. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So it's well, actually- we're having a here. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. Number two is what is your favorite food as medicine? So really- oh, my gosh. Um, there are so many. I think probably ginger. Mm-hmm. I just always feel better after I have like a ginger tea or even like I like like to eat the ginger strips on their own um, with like sushi or things like that. So good. Number three is what is the most used item in your kitchen? I'm trying to think. I actually forget to salt my food often, <laughs> but I do like this. Like it's like a yellow. It's like a spice blend, but it's Japanese. Um, but it's kind of like a tangy yellow, citrusy blend. Yum. Okay. Um, number four. What is um, one thing or an idea? A book. Anything that you've been really passionate about recently? Actually, I've been rereading recently, Defining Decade. I read it actually in my early 20s when I was first starting consulting and then have been revisiting it now when I'm, you know, in my late 20s, almost 30 to see if I'm like having different takeaways this time around. I love it. We're going to put that in our show notes. Uh, Number five, what is the best piece of advice that you've been given? It was when I was debating actually starting a company or like joining one. And this was like the fall of 2021. And I spoke to another founder and he was like, why are you, why work for someone else? Like, he was like, you, you know, a lot, like give yourself credit. And like, no one knows more than you. They just have time. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I should just do it. Be bold. Okay, for our final question, this one's a little bit more uh, serious or reflective, um, but we always love to ask, what was one quality that you had as a young woman or teen that you maybe didn't take pride in then, but looking back, you appreciate so much more now? Yeah, I think I've always had really healthy self-esteem. And so I like build my own confidence from like trying something, failing, but then sometimes succeeding in a way that like I don't rely really on other people for my confidence or assurance if I'm like on the right path. And I think that's really served me well to just like listen to myself and take action on things that I feel passionate about. And I wish that I had probably like leaned into that even more when I was in high school and college. That is so beautiful. 
obviously we're a company all about the development of confidence. And the etymology of the word confidence comes basically from roots that mean self-trust. And I think that confidence can kind of have a really external perception when you think of the word, but really, you know, like you were saying, from a young age, being able to trust yourself in the way that you handle different things and live your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really the, the building blocks of confidence Maybe. itself. So Irene, thank you so much for being here with me. I loved your, our conversation, learning about your background and Chio. Where can people learn more about Chio, sign up and learn more about yeah. you? So our website is wearechio.com. Also on Instagram, it's at <laughs> wearechio. And also our website is wearechio.com. Chio is spelled C-H-I-Y-O. That's is a mm-hmm. podcast. Might not be looking at it, but C-H-I-Y-O. And thank you so much, thank Irene. You. We can't wait to talk to you again soon. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?